In our previous presentation, we were considering how to correctly balance the three love commandments from God and Christ, as well as balancing the two principles of truth and love. There's a growing sentiment in our enlightened community in these last days, before the restoration of the kingdom of God, that love is greater than truth, and that truth has an overstated value. There is a growing disrespect for historic fellowship distinctions, with more calls for unity among believers, as opposed to harmony with God. This exalting of love above truth often includes the imbalancing of these three love commandments, of loving God with all our heart, all our strength, all our life, and then the new love commandment Jesus introduced at the Last Supper for loving our brothers and sisters greater than we love ourselves, and then God's command from Leviticus 19 to love our neighbors, but we're only required to love our neighbors to the degree that we love ourselves, which of course is less than the intensity standard Jesus appointed for loving the brotherhood, and far, far less than the intensity standard God requires for loving him. We also stated that there were two specific altar offerings directly identified with the two principles of truth and love, directly identified, that we want to learn to balance correctly for our Heavenly Father's approval. These are the burnt offering uh, that God identifies with truth, and the peace offering, which he identifies with love. But we really didn't prove that understanding yet, and that is our current task. But in doing this, we considered the validations of the powerful significance of the peace offering. The peace and burnt offerings were consumed by fire issuing from God on three highly significant occasions. The peace offering served as the official ordination offering for the priesthood, at the initiation of the kingdom of God at Sinai. The peace offering was the concluding ritual of the Nazarite vow, completing that separation to Yahweh by the man or woman emulating the high priest through those four separation requirements. So now we need to understand why and how this all has to do with our premise about love and balancing those divinely required love categories and how truth and love have to be correctly balanced. The peace offering has been frequently interpreted in our community as merely representing the principle of fellowship among each other. Well, that's, that's partially right, as it is the only altar offering where the three parties all fellowship together, enjoying the same sacrificial animal meal, God, the officiating priest, and the offering party. But that's only a partial answer. An answer that accommodates a somewhat self-centered focus as opposed to a God-centered frame of reference. God tells us directly what he expected from both the peace offering and the burnt offering. The more, the more comprehensive answer is that the div divinely expected behavioral pattern for the peace offering was love. And we can prove this very conclusively. God declares this directly in a verse in Hosea, an expression that Jesus quotes to rebuke leaders in the enlightened community more than once, uh, such as when he defended his disciples for picking and eating grain on a Sabbath while walking through a grain field. Jesus told the accusing Pharisees, but if you had known what this means, 
I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. So, our king recommends we understand this quote to avoid understandings that he disapproves. Unfortunately, this Hosea quote is frequently misunderstood and misinterpreted in our community, but it has everything to do with the subject of love and the peace offering. So let's look at this uh, quote in Hosea 6 and verse 6. God says, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. It's often presumed incorrectly that these are general terms, sacrifice and offerings. But we always need to remember God invariably testifies with an intentional complexity, with a specific purpose. If we're always looking for simple answers, then we do not have those rare hearing ears that Jesus says are required to truly understand divine testimony. The Hebrew word translated sacrifice here is zabak. To truly understand this word, one needs to look up all 162 times this word is used in the Old Testament, no matter which way it is translated. Now, this allows us to see how the word is used, not simply trusting the very general description in a Strong's Concordance. Now, this is how I was taught the meaning of words in elementary school decades and decades ago. We would have to spell the word and use it in this sentence at least five different times, uh, five different ways, sometimes as many as ten was the assignment, using the target word in repeated applications is what proved to my teacher that I actually understood the word. This is also the case with the words God uses in his testimony. The best way to understand these words the way God does is to see the various ways those words are used, no matter how they are translated uh, into English. So in looking up all 162 uses of the word zabak, we will find the very dominant, not entirely exclusive, application to be quite specific. Zabak indicates the peace offering. The way this identification is assured is to be familiar with the exact requirements of the peace offering, the, the operation, the execution of each detail of the peace offering. This is how we knew that the third sacrificial animal in the priest ordination was a peace offering. As it was not specifically noted in Leviticus 8, it was the sacrificial procedure that exactly identified that second ram, the ram of ordination with its blood being dabbed onto each priest applicant's right ear, right thumb, right toe. This was the peace offering, the zabak. So this expression of God's in Hosea that Jesus advises we understand correctly is telling us God wants mercy instead of the peace offering. But the word mercy should be understood as well, as there are several possible mercy prompts. This Hebrew word translated mercy is kesed. This word tells us that the correct mercy prompt is love. Kesed indicates a mercy springing from love, as opposed to simply empathy or even, even bribery, which is certainly a mercy prompt. I have over 50 different Old Testament translations. 
thanks to a gift. Uh, the most dominant rendering of this word kased in all these translations is steadfast love, and often simply love. It is love that God expects from the shadow lesson of the peace offering, the zabak. Now let's finish this divine statement with the accompanying expression, where God says, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Just as God expects love and merciful love from the shadow lesson of the highly significant peace offering, he wants the knowledge of him more than burnt offerings, which was another very specific altar offering. Actually, the offering for which the Christ altar was directly identified. It was called the altar of burnt offering, referring to that foundational altar offering detailed in Leviticus chapter 1, and also that first and last altar offering every single day, and doubled on every Sabbath for a total of four, just like the four letters in the name of God, yad heh vav heh YHWH, and that doubled Sabbath burnt offering will be doubled yet again every Sabbath in the restored kingdom of God to a total of eight burnt offerings on a Sabbath day in that Sabbath kingdom. But no more evening burnt offerings. Just as the four burnt offerings every Sabbath promoted the pursuit of the knowledge of God with his four-letter memorial name, so the eight Sabbath burnt offerings in the restored kingdom of God highlight the requirement to pursue the knowledge of the Son of God with his powerful identification with the number eight particularly in his name, with those six alphanumeric Greek letters adding up to 888. Unfortunately, we often hear again that the daily burnt offering merely represented a general dedication to God. But again, although partially correct, that is only a partial understanding. Still accurate, still legitimate, but definitely incomplete God declares very clearly, very specifically here in Hosea that the behavior pattern he expects from the shadow lesson of the burnt offering is knowledge about him. This is the very theme of our class. Understanding the righteousness, the rightness of God, which is the standard for truth. Therefore, we are offered a wonderful insight for answering our question about how to correctly balance truth and love. These truth and love principles are projected in these two altar offerings of the burnt offering and the peace offering. These are the two behavioral responses God expected from the intentionally complex shadow testimony of these positive altar offerings, as opposed to to the negative offerings of sin and trespass offerings that were never consumed by fire from heaven, and the bread and the wine offerings that always accompanied the burnt and the peace offerings were not required components of the sin or trespass offerings. We easily recognize the great significance of both of these altar offering categories, but one of them was chosen by God to be the foundational offering beginning every day of service and ending every day of service. This was the daily 
burnt offering, from which God expected the behavioral response of pursuing the knowledge of him, truth. There were three morning and evening rituals prescribed by God for the priesthood to uh, perform every day, all bound together by the application of fire, and of course fire's capacity to generate light, enlightenment. First was the refueling of the seven golden lamps, with an obvious connection to enlightenment. Um, This is the same issue of pursuing the knowledge of God that begins every day and ends every day. The second uh, daily morning ritual uh, was the burning of the four equal and crushed to powder incense ingredients uh, on the golden altar of incense. This projects the commitment stage following enlightenment. This is because the incense is interpreted for us in Psalms and Revelation as representing the prayers of the faithful. Once we positively responded to the call uh, to enlightenment, we have the opportunity to respond to the call to commitment projected in this second daily ritual representing prayer, the burning of the four incense ingredients. A third was the daily burnt offering. That whole lamb carcass was burned, with the single exception of the skin of that animal that was given to the officiating priest. And that skin represents the principle of atonement, which is exactly what the burnt offering is identified with directly when God gives the procedural directions for this offering in Leviticus chapter 1, and it's given to the priest. And we hope to be the immortal priests in the restored kingdom of God. We've already determined that this burnt offering promotes our dedication to pursuing the knowledge of God. So, after enlightenment concerning the terms of God's righteousness and our commitment, then we still have to perform, projected in that burnt offering, meaning how our thoughts, words, and deeds will validate God's righteousness no matter what the cost may be. That morning and evening procedure interestingly includes 12 stages, I'm I'm sorry, 12 applications at three stages, or three stations, I guess I should say, that is doubled, morning and evening. There are seven lamps to refuel, four blended incense ingredients to burn, and one whole lamb to burn, for a total of 12 within the frame of three rituals. Again, it's the avenue of fire acceptance that binds these three stages together, um, as we noted when considering the subject of, of the fear of God. The doubled 12 stations performed twice per day is a projection of the two immortalizations of the saints being saved by fire. For two sets of saints at the beginning of the seventh divine day and the beginning of the eighth divine day. Twelve is the number of the saints all through scripture, uh, endlessly validated, and fits perfectly into how four serves as the appointed number of God manifestation, and then doubling that to eight serves as the appointed number of the Son of God, our Savior, and then tripling that number four adds the saints that are chosen by Christ due to their manifesting his Father in their lives. And this is why 12 is used so extensively throughout Scripture in relation to the saints, not the enlightened community particularly, 
um, in general, yes, but to the saints particularly. And why these three rituals, with their 12 total applications, are doubled each day, projecting the two salvation events of the saints at the beginning of the seventh divine day and the beginning of the eighth divine day since creation. There is an obvious emphasis on spiritual knowledge and truth emphasized in these three evening and morning rituals. Truth was the divine principle being silently shouted to the enlightened community every morning of every day during that first kingdom age, especially as they were again bound together by fire, which generates light. The lamp oil was burned. The uh, incense was burned. The lamb burnt offering was also offered to God in the flames of the altar. In connection with our understanding of the truth offering, it is highly significant that on each Sabbath day, the morning and evening burnt offering was doubled. In the same way, in the kingdom and the Sabbath kingdom of that seventh millennium, the restored kingdom of God will see a dramatic increase in the knowledge of God. Enlightenment will no longer be optional when God ends his prophesied self-imposed term of silence at the introduction of the kingdom. The knowledge of God will be promoted globally by an immortalized Christ and the saints. Therefore, it should come as no surprise that we see the daily burnt offering on the Sabbath doubled yet again, but limited only to the morning, not before darkness. So let's begin to review this in Ezekiel 46. Um, this is, of course, within the uh, um, prophecy uh, given to Ezekiel beginning in chapter 40, uh, referring to the, uh, uh, the restoration of the kingdom of God, the millennial kingdom. So Ezekiel 46, verse 13, you shall prepare a burnt offering unto the Lord. Oh, I'm sorry, you shall daily, daily prepare a burnt offering unto the Lord of a lamb of the first year without blemish. Thou shalt prepare it every morning. Now there's no requirement for an evening daily burnt offering, unlike the first kingdom age. Now this is the age of divine enlightenment, the millennial kingdom. Understanding the terms of God's righteousness will be mandated, and that is exactly the intended behavioral prompt from the burnt offering, just like we read in Hosea 6. God wants the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. He wants the substance more than the shadow. Casting that substance there will be severe consequences during the millennial kingdom for a failure to comply with the religious requirements of Christ's uh, religious and political authority. Uh, we read, for example, in Zechariah chapter 14, um, which uh, is uh, chapters 12 through 14 deal with the um, Armageddon and the introduction and the salvation of the Jews by Christ and the saints and the Mount of Olives, and subsequently, verse 9, uh, the Lord is the king over all the earth. And then we read, uh, starting in verse 16, And it shall come to pass that everyone that's left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, uh, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, 
even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up, and come not, that have no rain, there shall be the plague, wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen, that come not up to keep the feast of tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt, and the punishment of all nations, that come not up to keep the feast of tabernacles. Drought and plague will be the consequences for non-compliance with the laws and rituals of the kingdom age. Therefore, it seems very appropriate that there will only be one daily burnt offering on each of the first six days of every week in the morning, but on the eighth day, there'll be a total of eight. And we know this because the prince, which can be no one else but Jesus Christ, has to offer another seven burnt offerings every Sabbath. We read this in Ezekiel 46, um, verse 4 says, And the burnt offering that the prince shall offer unto the Lord in the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish. So the, so the truth offering, the olah, that burnt offering, uh, that's the offering that defined the Christ altar, as it's called the altar of burnt offering, the altar of truth, it wasn't called the altar of peace offering, the altar of love, as love, uh, as love as we have seen and will validate even more is the divinely intended behavioral prompt of the peace offering. So let's further demonstrate the significance of getting these issues understood. When we correctly understand the features of our Creator's righteousness, we can validate those correct understandings from many different directions. Three-dimensionally, there is a hidden glory that begins to be revealed when we can see the perfect harmony in all divine testimony. Another significant modification in this burnt offering, uh, the burnt offering requirements between the first and second kingdom ages, ages is that there will only be three components in the millennial kingdom and not four as in the first kingdom age. Let's compare these and start to look for that glory. Ezekiel 46, beginning at verse 13, you shall, prepare a, a, you shall daily prepare a burnt offering unto the Lord of a lamb of the first year without blemish. You shall prepare it every morning and you shall prepare a meat, basically a, um, a minka, a grain, offering for it every morning the sixth part of an ephah and the third part of a hin of oil to temper with the fine flour a meat or a flour a minka offering continually by a perpetual ordinance unto the lord thus shall they prepare the lamb and the minka the grain offering and the oil every morning for a continual burnt offering so we have the lamb the minka the grain offering that sixth part of an ephah and the oil, three components. But in the first kingdom age, there were two burnt offerings per day with four components. We see this in Ezekiel, I'm sorry, Ezekiel, Exodus. Exodus chapter 29, picking up at verse 38. Now this is that which you shall offer upon the altar. Two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer at even. And with the one lamb, a tenth deal of flour mingled with the fourth part of an hin of beaten oil and 
the fourth part of a hin of wine for a drink offering. And the other lamb you shall offer it even, and you shall do according to the minka, grain offering of the morning, and according to the drink offering thereof, for a sweet soft savor, notice that bread and wine, grain and, and wine, for a sweet savor, an offering made by fire unto the Lord, this shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before Yahweh, where I will speak, where I will meet you to speak there unto you. Now, for those who were who were present or perhaps have reviewed the online presentations of the Visions of the Kingdom Age classes or, or the Red Heifer classes, you've probably picked up in this. Um, there's another one of those double four demonstrations in these morning and evening burnt offerings. We see the four components of the burnt offering doubled. The lamb, the flour, the oil, and the wine. Four components to this one burnt offering, this truth offering, and four is the number of God manifestation, radiating from those four letters in the name of Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, and demonstrated also in the four salvation events in our Creator's plan. Uh, these are the three immortalizations of Christ and the saints, and then the salvation of all of creation, when that last enemy, death, is eliminated along with sin. As we know that the, the death is the wages of sin, Without death, there can be no sin. Without sin, we don't have any of those physical effects of sin, that corruption that is in the world through lust, as Peter explained. Now, if anybody, we don't, we're not going to take the, the hours needed to um, review these number identifications, but if anybody would happen to like the notes on how the number four is most certainly the divinely appointed number for the principle of God manifestation, and 8 is of Jesus Christ, and 12 is of the saints, just send me an email at Bible888 at AOL.com. I'd be happy to send them along to you. The evidence is uh, absolutely overwhelming for those identifications. So, in the first kingdom age, we have this double four components to the truth offering, repeated morning and evening. But in the restored kingdom, there are only three components to the daily burnt offering. It's only offered in the morning. The wine is missing. We only have the lamb, the flour, the oil. No wine. Now the story, the story of the wine is a fascinating consideration as it progresses through the four divine dispensations in the Creator's plan. Uh, but at this point, we simply need to observe the fact that there are only three burnt offering components. Offered only once per day for six days, and then eight times on every Sabbath. There is that same 6-3-8 pattern that we've seen before and briefly considered in our fourth presentation of this series. Those three burnt offering components are offered once each day for six days, but on the last day, Sabbath day, those three components are offered eight times. Now, this is the pattern demonstrated in the name of our Savior that we've reviewed before, where, where this, so many times, the six alphanumeric Greek letters spelling his name adds up to three eights. Iota, eta, sigma, omicron, epsilon, and sigma add up to eight, eight, eight. Shadow prophesying of the three salvation events of Christ and the saints. When six will become eight. 
when cursed mortal life will become blessed immortality on three occasions. We observe this shadow pattern in both of the salvation ark shadows of Noah's ark and the golden ark of the covenant, as well as other examples, it, um, always in the context of the principle of salvation. Now we see it once again here in the law of the daily burnt offering, the truth offering, as it will be practiced in the millennial kingdom. When the daily burnt offering is redoubled on the Sabbath day in the Sabbath kingdom, the seventh divine day since creation. So we've demonstrated the divinely intended behavioral prompt for the burnt offering, which is the knowledge of God, truth. We've demonstrated how the observation requirements for this truth offering are somewhat modified in the second kingdom age compared to the first, and how these changes align perfectly with this understanding about this being the truth offering, as the kingdom will be that age of enlightenment concerning the knowledge of our creator, when enlightenment is no longer optional but divinely mandated, with severe consequences for opposition. Now, let, now let's use these identifications of the burnt offering and the peace offering to identify that order of significance so that we can balance these two divine principles of truth and love being shadowed in these altar offerings. Because that correct order is being increasingly reversed in our community at this time where truth is being degraded below love and divine love laws, the divine love laws are being very much imbalanced. Let's confirm this truth love relationship and how these two offerings, the truth and the love offerings were related. God required that the peace offering, the love offering could not be offered independently. It had to be built on truth, to be offered on top of the burnt offering. We read this in Leviticus chapter 3, uh, just checking out a couple of the verses, verses 3 and 5. We read and the directions to give unto Moses for the peace offering, and he shall offer the sacrifice of the peace offering, an offering made by fire unto the Lord, and Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar upon the burnt sacrifice, on the olah which is upon the wood that is on the fire. It is an offering made by fire, a sweet savor unto the Lord. The peace offering had to be offered on top of the olah, the burnt offering, which was a very specific offering, not, an off not a general offering. Now the fine flour and the wine offerings, the comparable bread and wine offerings, always accompanied the burnt offering. Well, at least in the previous uh, first kingdom age. This was the truth offering. The truth offering, the burnt offering, was the foundation for the love offering, not the other way around, as is frequently being promoted in our community today, where fellowship distinctions are disrespected, supposedly on the basis of love and brotherhood unity. But that is an imbalanced love, where the love of brothers and sisters is elevated above the love of God and above the respect for honoring the terms of God's righteousness, what we and the scripture call the truth. And this is the theme of our considerations, understanding the righteousness of God. This demands 
respecting God's truth above love. That's the divine equation. The serpent frame of reverence is elevating truth. I'm, I'm sorry, is elevating love above truth, declaring that truth really isn't all that important compared to loving each other and presuming that we're all equal in God's sight. Equality is a delusion of what God warns us is the most deceitful element in all the creation. It issues from the human heart, this presumption of equality. Just as God declared to Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and then asks, who knows this? We have demonstrated that truth is greater than love. We've only considered a small part of the evidence for this understanding of what our Creator testifies to being right. As with all legitimate truths, there are endless ways of proving these correct understandings. And this is what I mean by saying that we can prove correct understandings three-dimensionally from many different directions. This is because of the principle of God-manifestation which can also be expressed as multitudinous singularity, that everything is connected to everything else. Nothing is isolated all by itself. It is these connections, this layered testimony that is perfectly harmonious to the whole, by which we can see, which we can see with seeing eyes to ensure our confidence that we truly do understand the terms of our Creator's righteousness. But now let's validate that layered significance of the three love commandments from God and Christ by paralleling them with the three divisions of the love offering, that, that peace offering. Those three divisions of the peace offering were the thanksgiving offering, the vow offering, and the free will offering. Now the significant issue paralleling those, uh, these three love commandments and three love offering um, divisions is that just as there were separate intensity qualifiers for those three love commandments, there were also perfectly corresponding significance qualifications for the three peace offering, love offering categories. Now, greater restrictions indicate greater significance. The Thanksgiving offering, uh, what Paul declared qualified as praising God, had the greatest restrictions of the three peace offerings. Let's read in Leviticus 7. And this is the law of the sacrifice of the peace offerings, which he shall offer unto the Lord, if he offer it for a thanksgiving. So dropping down to verse 15. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten the same day that it is offered, and he shall not leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering be a vow, or a voluntary, meaning a free will, same word, offering, it shall be eaten the same day that he offers his sacrifice, and on the morrow also the remainder of it shall be eaten. But the remainder of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burnt with fire, and if any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings be eaten at all on the third day, it shall not be accepted, neither shall it be imputed to, unto him that offers it. It shall be an abomination, and the soul that eats of it shall bear his iniquity. Well, let's just uh, consider for a moment the, the significance of, of not allowing it uh, to exist 
into that next day, to the morning. That was the law for the Passover as well. The Passover lamb had to be eaten in the darkness. And if anything remained, it was to be incinerated before dawn. Um, great significance in that. And here it's repeated with the peace offering and the uh, consumption, that fellowship with God and the officiating priest and the offering party. So the Thanksgiving peace offering was limited to being shared on the same day it was offered. But this restriction was relaxed for a vow offering and the free will offering, which again is called the voluntary offering here, but again it's the same Hebrew word translated as free, free will offering. Now, unlike the Thanksgiving offering, these uh, two peace offering categories of vows and free will permitted the consumption of the sacrificial animal to be the first as well as the second day. Uh, there's yet another restriction relaxing distinction for the free will offering that is not permitted for either the thanksgiving or vow offerings. So we go to chapter 22 of Leviticus and we pick up at verse 21. Whosoever offers a sacrifice of peace offerings unto the Lord to accomplish his vow or a free will offering in cattle or sheep, it shall be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no blemish therein. Blind or broken or maimed or having a wen or scurvy or scabbed, you shall not offer these unto Yahweh, nor make an offering by fire of them unto the Lord, uh, un upon the altar of the Lord, unto the Lord. <sighs> Either a bullock or lamb that has anything superfluous or lacking in his parts, that you may offer for a free will offering, but for a vow it shall not be accepted. So, the free will peace offering could not only be eaten the first and the second day, but this free will animal offering could actually have certain blemishes that were not allowed for the more restrictive offerings. So we have three peace offering categories that demonstrate a descending significance qualification that perfectly parallels the three divine love commandments that also have a descending intensity qualification. The Thanksgiving offering, that praise to God offering, with its greatest observation restrictions, parallels the greatest of all love commandments, demanding that we love God with all our heart and all our life and all our strength. The vow performance peace offering, that love offering Paul defines as doing good, parallels Christ's new commandment to love our brothers and sisters in the truth more than we love ourselves. There is a love intensity reduction beneath the required greater love of God. The free will peace offering, that love offering Paul defined to the Hebrews as sharing what we have, parallels the love commandment to love our neighbors, but only, it's only required to love them as much as we love ourselves. Just as Paul balances these two love commandments to the Galatians by stating that we should do good unto all men, but especially to the household of faith. All loves are not equal. Equality is an automatic imbalancing of divine principles. So the intensity qualifications in the three great love commandments from God and Christ are paralleled perfectly in the restriction qualifications of the three love offering categories of the peace offering. Therefore, how 
should these understandings affect our discipleship? First of all, we should not be accommodating this contradictory understanding that is growing in our enlightened community that love is greater than truth. Again, this is manifested in the accelerating challenges to fellowship distinctions, which are challenges to the, principle, to the importance of truth. Inviting alternate understandings of a variety of issues related to what God declares to be right. That somehow greater respect should be afforded to supposedly well-meaning brothers and sisters than the respect shown to God's testimony. Throughout the last 6,000 years, those who God approved of to the greatest degree were often degraded, disrespected, and even persecuted by the enlightened communities of their generations, including Abel, Job, Moses, David, Naboth, Elijah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the apostles, particularly Paul, and of course, Jesus, were all opposed, often threatened, and even killed by the enlightened community. Another application in this challenge to properly balance the three required loves would be how withdrawing fellowship for a refusal to repent is in reality an act of love, a love for God and a love for the brother or sister refusing to repent. Often we oddly hear objections that fellowship withdrawal is an act of hatred, exactly the opposite of what the Bible repeatedly expresses. This is the same popular societal sentiment that discipline actually teaches a child to be violent. That presumption is another contradiction to the terms of our Creator's righteousness. God says the absence of discipline qualifies as hatred. Proverbs 13, we read, He that spares his rod hates his son, but he that loves him chastens him betimes. This defining of ecclesial discipline for refusing to repent is an imbalancing of both truth and love and an imbalancing of the divine love laws, dropping the love of God below the love of our unrepentant brothers and sisters. And repentance is not simply saying one is sorry. Repentance means a behavior reversal, stopping the ungodly behavior, the insulting to God behavior, not accommodating that divinely disrespectful behavior by simply presuming an often meaningless apology is all that's required of God without a real repentance. If we truly want an eternal relationship with the creator of heaven and earth, then we are expected to elevate him to the highest significance in our lives above all other loves and to invariably respect the terms of what he declares to be right, but also to correctly balance those terms when they appear on the surface to contradict. As the first rule of hearing the hearing ears that Jesus advises us to develop is to recognize the intentional complexity in all divine testimony that filters between the various members of the enlightened community. Our next consideration will address the balancing of faith and works by considering the testimony of the signature rituals of the covenant of faith 
and the covenant of works. And seeing how that testimony offers a a three-dimensional glory that not only defines the path of divine approval, but offers a shadow prophecy of the two salvation events of the saints that parallel the two resurrections of our Savior, with his first resurrection uh, of an awakening back to mortality, and then that second resurrection, but to immortality, that took place very appropriately a few hours later on the next day and the early part of the day in evening. Those will be our considerations for the next class.